Okay, good day everyone. This is Tom Berger from Keller & Heckman, as you probably know. I hope everyone's having a great summer, even though it hasn't uh, officially started. Welcome to another Keller & Heckman Tosca 3030. Thanks for joining us. We have another great turnout with about, I don't know, 150 or 200 people signed up. We have two speakers today, yours truly, and one of our senior associates, who many of you know, Adrian Timmel, who has been focused on uh, Tosca CBI and issues since the enactment of uh, LCSA. Today we're going to be looking at the new Tosca, now that it's gotten to the appropriate, appropriately named Terrible Twos, and beginning a week from Saturday, June 22nd, the Thunderous Threes. Given our limited time, we won't be able to answer any questions during the webinar itself, I don't think, but feel free to email us or use the chat feature so we can respond after the webinar. So enough for me reading scripted stuff. Let's get to the good stuff. I'll skip the pictures of me and Adrian. Okay. Many of you have seen the slide. These are the sections of Tosca we'll be talking about today. As I mentioned, we've got a lot to cover since we're going to cover basically all of these sections. We're not going to spend too much time on Section 3. We're not going to spend too much time on Section 13. And Adrian, as I mentioned, is going to cover Section 14. As you probably know, if EPA comes to inspect your site, they typically focus on compliance with Section 4, 5, 6, 8, 12, 13. So 4, 5, 6, 8, 12, 13 are kind of the core sections of Tosca. So let's start with four and kind of work our way forward. Uh, LCSA basically uh, streamlined Section 4 and expanded EPA's authority. So now EPA can, and some of this was done informally, but EPA now can retire, require testing by order or consent agreement as opposed to a full-blown time-intensive test rule. Uh, and EPA now has explicit authority to obtain exposure information. Before that was, it had been done informally, but now it's more explicit. EPA has to tier testing uh, and, as I'll discuss on the next slide, reduce vertebrate uh, testing to the extent practical. Uh, despite all these changes to Section 4, we haven't seen any action under Section 4 uh, in eight years. And that, you may recall, was kind of a combination snare test rule. Uh, for uh, I think it was the fourth batch of HPV chemicals. So Section 4 theoretically is easier for EPA to use, but they simply haven't used it since uh, Lautenberg enactment. Okay, uh, just briefly on this one, as I mentioned, the statute requires EPA to, within two years of enactment, develop the strategic plan to reduce animal vertebrate testing and to provide better information uh, or information of better scientific quality. So EPA, you know, went down to the wire. But, yes, two days after the enactment of Lautenberg, uh, EPA issued the strategic plan. I won't read the rest of you, uh, rest of this to you, but every five years, EPA has to report to Congress about what's going on. Um, and quite frankly, this hasn't, um, hasn't had too much uh, practical impact, although once in a while it does come up in the context of PMNs. That was easy. It's going to get more complex here. Okay. Many of you have have seen this slide, right? Uh, as you know, we've done, you know, webinars on this slide alone, basically. Uh, but basically, when EPA reviews a PMN, it must affirmatively make one of three findings, as we show here below. I may try to use some graphics here in a second, uh, under Section 5A3. Right? The A, B, or C. A is the bad one, that a substance pre presents an unreasonable risk. B is the one we're going to focus on, hence the big red arrow. And C is the not likely finding. That's the good one where EPA essentially approves your PMN substance uh, right off the bat. So all the fun, all the action is under Section 5A3B boy. And as you can see from this chart, each of these findings triggers one or more specific types of EPA actions, whether it be no action at all, essentially approval, or a full-blown, uh, in some cases, Section 6A rule. 
So, you know, a very, very quick overview of Section 5A3. So what have we seen? Well, you know, as you probably know, if you filed PMNs or had PMNs in the queue back in 2016, what we see is a continued evolution in terms of what data EPA is uh, required and what type of approach EPA uses to approve your PMN. And all this is driven by this requirement that EPA make an affirmative finding, affirmative finding under Section 5A3, and uh, that uh, EPA's uh, uh, considerations include uh, conditions of use of the chemical at issue. All right. Um, and so what we saw, as you probably know, in the last three years, initially, third and fourth quarter of 2016, we basically saw a complete halt to a PMN approvals. Then EPA almost uh, exclusively wanted 90-day inhalation studies up front. And then, geez, it's now been probably a year and a half or so, EPA moved towards this lung toxicity project where EPA often would accept uh, physical chemical property data, sometimes particle size data, um, uh, in lieu of, uh, say, a 90-day study. So uh, we're still seeing a fair amount of PMNs kind of in that category, a lot of focus on inhalation toxicity. So the current approach we're seeing with PMNs, uh, note the last slide here, is basically EPA does one of three things when they, uh, let's again focus on 5A3B. Um, primarily what you'll see are these non-order SNRs. Right, a non-order snare is where EPA basically allows manufacture or import to commence, uh, but only when EPA proposes a snare to essentially limit the uses of the chemical. So, you know, I guess this is good and bad. On one hand, you don't have a traditional Section 5e order. On the other hand, at least the way EPA currently uses this, you have to wait until a proposed snare issues until you can manufacture or import your PMN substance. And, and as we know, this often can take many, many months, if not years, to see a proposed snare. Uh, however, if EPA uh, requires uh, uh, mandatory toxicity testing, you, uh, EPA still will issue the traditional Section 5e order with a snare to level the playing field, right? Because Section 5e orders only apply to the company that signs the order, i.e. the PMN submitter. We also, uh, particularly more recently, are seeing EPA approvals uh, basically uh, with uh, personal protective equipment and some release controls and sometimes restrictions on particle size. So we're seeing more of those. Um, EPA is frequently, uh, at least initially, requesting use of APF 1000 respirators, and this is a very, very, I don't know what the word is here, a very, very stringent uh, protective respirator, but we've had a lot of success in um, providing data to show that a lesser respirator, if you will, uh, will get the job done. I feel like I'm speaking really quickly, so I'll slow down a little bit. How's that? Okay, so what do we think is going to happen in 2019 with PMNs? And, you know, I'm not even going to get into the issues about backlog and all that kind of stuff, but there certainly continues to be a backlog of PMNs at EPA. Um, I mentioned some of the particle size and biosiability that EPA had been requiring uh, at least a, a, in the off-ramps to this lung toxicity project, initially there was a fair amount of confusion as to the protocols for this study, uh, for these studies, and we have had some success, however, in kind of obtaining some clarification on the on the uh, protocols for these studies. Uh, this non-order snare process that I very very briefly covered is controversial, and certainly NGOs have argued that it is uh, not permitted by the statute. Uh, the first batch of non-order snares was. Uh, published last October, I believe, and uh, the final snares issued April 5th of this year, and uh, you know, kind of expecting some some litigation, uh, potential litigation, as to the appropriateness of that approach. 
Also, last bullet here, there are a number of SNRs kind of in the hopper. Some of these are for uh, categories of substances like TDI and PFAS. Um, uh, that, that uh, some specific groups will be interested in. Um, I certainly am looking forward to seeing that uh, the first bullet there, the general SNR uh, provision amendments, where EPA does things like try, where they're proposing to try to harmonize uh, some of the SNR requirements with some HASCOM requirements, trying to allow for um, uh, removal by wastewater treatment in the SNR context, etc. Uh, the second one there, the nonalphenol SNR, many of you are familiar with that one, which was basically um, where EPA used a SNR to try to address primarily a nomenclature issue. I think many people are looking forward to that one. I believe it was at least according to the um, regulatory agenda was proposed to be finalized sometime in 2019. And some of these SNRs also have some interesting characteristics, some of the last three there, in terms of, uh, for example, the absence of an exemption for articles, and I spoke on that if glo at Global Chem, if any of you uh, were at that session, kind of interesting, some interesting stuff. I'm going to grab a sip of water. Okay, Section 6. Once again, we could give an entire webinar just on Section 6, but we're going to go through this pretty quickly. Um, basically, the Section 6 process is a three-step process, where the statute requires EPA to prioritize chemicals on the inventory, evaluate the risk of these chemicals, and then take action if justified. So prioritization, risk evaluation, and risk management, which really means uh, Section 6 rule in this context. Now, this, uh, I was concerned the slide wouldn't be legible, but it is. Uh, certainly, we're not going to go through this slide, but this is as good a slide as I can find in terms of uh, showing the process and the associated timelines under Section 6. So all sorts of different actions, all sorts of different timelines, We'll get into some of that on this next slide. So among the first things that happened, Section 6B2 of uh, the Luttenberg Act required EPA to take some actions on, on an initial set of 10 chemicals. And EPA announced these back in December of 2016, which was, what, six months after or six months, within six months of the enactment of Luttenberg. And these chemicals included things like asbestos and carbon tet, methylene chloride, NMP, and pigment violet 29, okay? Then, geez, almost what, a year and a half later, uh, well, EPA had also issued some initial scoping documents, but a year and a half later, EPA issued problem formulation documents. You may have seen some of these where they tried to refine the scope of the risk evaluations uh, and did things like, in many cases, exclude legacy uses. So these are very lengthy documents where EPA basically tries to define the problem and propose a plan for analyzing uh, and controlling any risks. Okay, so of these first 10, uh, last November, EPA issued a draft risk evaluation for pigment violet 29 and uh, essentially went for some low-hanging fruit because they proposed this substance would be a low-risk substance. Uh, this uh, draft evaluation uh, was subject to some criticism because the substance had low solubility, low vapor pressure, low releases, fairly clean tox, low absorption, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so it was fairly easy, at least in EPA's mind, to conclude that this was a low-risk substance. Now, critics would say that, hey, this chemical is data poor, and also point out that at least in Europe, uh, this chemical is at least uh, proposed for regulation as a PBT. So looking ahead, we got one down, nine to go. Uh, the final risk evaluations for these first 10 chemicals are due by December of this year, although the statute allows EPA to 
uh, obtain a single six-month extension without any criteria. So I suspect you will see uh, that happen. Got to find my slide advance. What is it? Twelve after. So we're doing okay on time. Yep, went too far. Sorry. Okay, boy, again, you could spend a lot of time on this slide. Probably the first bullet here is the most important and the most timely, I guess. As you probably know, uh, back in March, EPA – well, I should back up a bit. Uh, under Section 6B2B, EPA is required to designate at least 20 low-priority and be conducting risk assessments on at least 20 high-priority substances by December 2019, right, which was three and a half years from enactment of the statute. So lo and behold, back in March, EPA says, here are our 20 high-priority candidates and 20 low-priority candidates under uh, 6B2B. Comments are due uh, one week from today. I know we're certainly working on comments for these for clients. And the final designations are due from EPA by December of this year. Again, these would be designation as low and high-priority substances. Okay, so that's kind of a kind of a big uh, big activity there. Secondly, the second bullet, uh, PBTs, uh, Section 6H, as you may know, is kind of a special section that allows EPA to take expedited action on PBTs, and EPA is required to publish a proposed Section 6A rule by June 22nd, a week from Saturday, not later than three years after Lautenberg Act was enacted. Finally, last bullet, we also have some more chemical-specific risk management rules that had some of which had been in the hopper uh, for several years. Uh, probably the one that's getting the most uh, press is the uh, methylene chloride, where you have these uh, regulations and proposed regulations on consumer and commercial use. Uh, and in fact, this final ban here. Let me see if I can put a little arrow here. This one here is already oh, supposed to be a green arrow. Not working. There it is. Uh, that one's already been uh, EPA has already been sued on this one uh, with the claim that the um, uh, ban was overbroad. So EPA is working its way through some of these Section Six actions. Let me get rid of this arrow. Okay, forgive me. I was trying to get too fancy with graphics. Okay, so I should have mentioned, but here's a list of all basically. This is a handy little list of the Section uh, 6 chemicals that are in play right now. Okay, obviously I won't read these all, and I mentioned a number of these in my last several slides. How do I get rid of that little green arrow? I guess it doesn't matter. Adrian, when you advance your slides, it may be a green arrow, but it still works. Okay, switching okay. gears. That was Section 6. Now we're going to Section 8A, CDR. As you know, every four years, CDR comes around. Section 8A, Chemical Data Reporting, which requires U.S. manufacturers and importers to report manufacture and import volume and certain other information to EPA using CDX. Okay, so this is coming around in the fall of 2020 once again. So as I've said many times, if you're planning to retire, you may want to do it before then. Um, but before we get there, uh, this rule, the CDR requirements may be less onerous than they are now because on April 25th, EPA published a rule to amend the CDR requirements. Comments are due, geez, again, next week. So all sorts of stuff going on here in June. A uh, week from Monday, I guess, is when the comments are due. Uh, but primarily, and I've got them listed down here, at least at least summarized, these are proposed deregulatory amendments, okay, which is a little surprising given that LCSA is basically a very data-hungry statute. 
and many suspected that when CDR was amended, amended you would see um, you know, basically more data being required. But in essentially every case, this is deregulatory. Just a couple of quick things. I mean, there's been some comments that, you know, changing all these process and use codes that you have to use to uh, OEC codes, the OECD codes may sound like a good idea, but if you've memorized all these codes and used them in the past, you're going to have to relearn all these codes. And, and as you may know, there are a lot of them. Also, I think this, uh, what bullet is this here? This co-manufacturing bullet here. Uh, seems like a good idea on paper where in a toll manufacturing situation currently the companies can decide amongst themselves who's going to report. Under this proposal, you would have to work with each other to get the report submitted. And again, I think that's good on paper, but in practice, I think um, you know, you're always going to be subject to a rate-limiting step, and that could make things a little bit more difficult than they are now where you can just pick one of the two and have them submit the report. Uh, another important uh, part of that proposal back in April is a proposal to amend the small manufacturer definition that's been around for many, many years now. Okay, so just think of this in the CDR context. Right now, let me go down here. Let's, I think it's easiest to start with this last bullet here. Right now, if your sales are less than $4 million, or at least they used to be less than $4 million, uh, proposed to be $11 million, if your sales are less than that amount, you are completely – exempt from CDR, with one exception I'll come back to in a second. The first standard up here is if your sales are less than 40 or $110 million as proposed, then you're exempt from CDR, except with respect to any chemical whose volume is over 100,000 pounds per year. So you're exempt if you're basically if your volumes are small. So if you qualify for uh, either one of those standards, you're exempt from CDR. However, neither of these two exceptions applies – to certain regulated chemicals like snurd chemicals, testrol chemicals, Section 6 chemicals. Okay, So you need to keep that in mind. I think there's a typo in the proposed language of the rule where they're talking about Section uh, 5B, was it 5B2 or 5B4, uh, which, uh, under which uh, you don't have rules. So I think that's just a typo. But in any event, uh, regulated chemicals uh, can make this exemption inapplicable. I've got 18 after. I think we're doing okay on time. I can advance the slide. I think that works. Is that correct? Is that my first reset slide? Okay. I think uh, everyone on this call should be familiar with the TOSC inventory reset, so I'm not going to read the slide or spend much time on it. But basically, uh, the key date was right here, February 7th of last year. By that date, companies had to report to EPA, uh, in some cases, a very long list of all chemicals that they manufacture or imported in this very long 10-year period between 2006 and 2016. All right, so everyone scrambled to get all these reports in by February 7th, uh, and this was called retrospective reporting. Uh, and this was important, let's go to the next slide, because reported chemicals and certain other uh, what were called interim active chemicals, uh, well, well, they wouldn't be inactive and under the statute, it is a violation of TOSCA to manufacture, import, or process an inactive chemical. Let me just repeat that. Under TOSCA, once all the dust settles, we'll get to that in a second, it will be a violation of TOSCA to manufacture, import, or process an inactive chemical unless you submit a Form B beforehand. So what happened? So we had all these reports go in by February of 2018, and about a year later, EPA puts up on its website – a revised version of the TOSCA inventory that shows basically which chemicals are active and which chemicals are inactive, right? EPA showed, what, 86,228 chemicals, 
and 40,000 or so were inactive. So actually, 53% of the chemicals on the inventory as we speak today are inactive. They're inactive. They're on the inventory, but they're inactive. Okay? So some people thought, and I think EPA actually said this in their March 13th webinar, if I remember correctly, that release of this inventory started this 90-day clock to basically uh, make chemicals inactive, okay? Because, next slide, inactive chemicals have a, you know, intentionally have a 90-day delayed effective date. Okay, and this was to prevent the problem where you could be going along manufacturing or importing a chemical that was on the inventory, but for one reason or another was not activated. Uh, and because you have to submit a Form B before you manufacture or import a chemical, once it becomes inactive, uh, you might have to shut down. So EPA said, hey, we'll give it a 90-day delayed effective date to pre prevent this problem of potential of, of having to potentially shut down. Okay. So EPA initially said, well, hey, that 90-day period started on February, was it 19th? But then, as you probably know, I think we sent out a blast or an article on this on our website. EPA said, no, 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 actually the, the dates are wrong, and now this effective date uh, is, uh, well, the, the effective date of inactive designations now, and I have this in red because that's the important date, is August 5th. So, as I said, beginning August 5th, it's a violation of TOSCA to manufacture, import, or process an inactive chemical unless you submit a Form B in advance. And there are two ways, two times you can submit a Form B. The first that I just marked here in green is the most common, and that means, say, five or six years from now, if you plan to manufacture or import a chemical, you simply have to submit a Form B before you manufacture or import that chemical. And once you do that, you can go ahead and uh, – commercialize the substance. There is no EPA review period. You could theoretically do it the same day. You could submit the Form B in the morning, start the manufacturing process in the afternoon. You also, as we sit here today, second bullet, you can submit a Form B as we sit here today. If you are A, currently manufacturing or processing or importing the substance, or if you anticipate doing so in the next 90 days. So you can submit a Form B as we sit here today. However, uh, you couldn't, for example, submit a Form B if you, you know, uh, manufactured a chemical one time in 2017, right, because you're not currently manufacturing the chemical. And if you don't anticipate doing so within the next 90 days, that chemical would be ineligible for a Form B, at least at this point. You'd have to wait until after August 5th. Okay, just very briefly, uh, you may know that uh, for chemicals that are not on the inventory, if you buy a chemical from a U.S. supplier – you are protected from uh, under Section 15.2, and you only violate TSCA if you know or have reason to know the chemical was manufactured, imported, or processed in violation of Section 5. We don't have that Section 15.2 protection for inactive chemicals. So I think, as I said in some presentations somewhere recently, you know, you know, it's 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 a bigger deal to manufacture, import, or process a chemical that's inactive in some respects than it is for a chemical that's not on in the inventory because you don't have 15-2 protection. So keep that in mind as you uh, proceed. Just very, very briefly, this was in the statute, and there isn't that much, uh, uh, too much guidance on this, but we do have, there's a mercury inventory, and you have two types of mercury bands. One, you can't export elemental mercury, uh, beginning January 1st of 2013, and then beginning January 1st of next year, uh, you are prohibited from exporting certain types of mercury compounds. 
uh, the export-only exemption doesn't apply. So you can't say, hey, uh, you know, I manufactured and labeled this chemical for export-only, therefore I don't have to do this. That doesn't apply. Um, it, uh, according to EPA, it applies even if the substance is not a chemical substance, i.e. it could be a food drug, cosmetic, or device. Uh, and there is some guidance that says that at least the elemental mercury export ban doesn't apply to products, but we don't have that guidance for mercury compounds. So that was a very, very quick run through my sections. I'll turn it over to Adrian, then I'll pick up again. Let's see here. Thank you, Tom, and good afternoon to everyone on the line. Um, my portion of this presentation will focus on TOSCA Confidential Business Information, or CBI, developments over the last year. There's a lot to cover, so I apologize in advance if I'm speaking quickly. Um, if we were for a second to pause and rewind to June 22, 2016, with the LCSA um, enactment of amendments to TOSCA, we note that the major changes to Section 14, which governs CBI, can be summarized as preserving the opportunity to claim non-health and safety information in TOSCA filings as CBI, but making the process more demanding on the submitter by requiring a four-pronged CBI certification statement and, critically, substantiation or justification for each claim. The amendments also put into place more procedures and timelines, which we're going to discuss now. Uh, specifically, the amendments tied the review of CBI claims for chemical identities on the confidential portion of TOSCA inventory to the inventory reset process that Tom just spoke about. EPA proposed its EBI review plan rule on April 23rd of this year. This proposal would require substantiation by manufacturers, importers, and processors that filed NOA Form A's for active substances within 90 days of the final rule. If we assume the final rule will be promulgated about the time of the statutory deadline, which is February 19th, 2020, then these substantiations will likely be due in in May of 2020. Under the proposal, failure to submit the substantiation by this deadline can result in immediate disclosure of the specific chemical identity. Um, but this is something that EPA is specifically asking for comments on, whether EPA should uh, provide notice, um, even though the statute doesn't necessarily mandate that. The proposal also provides an exemption from having to resubstantiate the chemical identity if one has previously substantiated it in a submission made to EPA less than five years before the substantiation deadline established in the final rule. But to rely on this exemption, one still has to affirmatively invoke it by the 90-day deadline. That's uh, what the proposal uh, would require. A recent court decision in a case challenging the inventory reset rule, so the rule um, about submitting NOA for A's and B's, also calls into question the validity of this exemption for prior substantiation. The court found that it was wrong um, for EPA not to require the substantiation to address in detail whether there is a reasonable basis to believe that the chemical identity is not readily discoverable through reverse engineering. In response, EPA said it may address this issue in a supplemental notice of proposed rulemaking, but that the current deadline for submitting comments on the CBI review plan rule remains in place. Ultimately, if EPA approves the CBI claim, the specific chemical identity is protected from disclosure for 10 years with unlimited opportunities to renew the claim. One should note that EPA has proposed to start the 10-year protection period from the date the first person submitted a CBI claim for that specific chemical identity since June 22, 2016. 
So that means that if a company is not the first person to assert a claim for the specific chemical identity, its protection period may be less than 10 years from the date it asserted the claim. If EPA denies the claim, then it must provide the submitter written notice with an explanation of why it was denied and an opportunity to challenge the decision within 30 days in federal district court. Now, as you can see, we've provided a timeline of the overall process, starting from the date the comments are due on the proposal, which is June 24th of this year, uh, like many of the other uh, deadlines Tom noted, to the date EPA must complete its CBI review of all active substances um, on the confidential inventory, which is February 19th, 2024. And if you're curious, most of these deadlines are based on EPA's release of the initial updated inventory with active chemical substance designations on February 19th of this year, which Tom uh, mentioned earlier. And as a reminder, for NOA Form Bs required to manufacture, import, or process an inactive chemical substance, substantiation to maintain a confidential chemical identity is due within 30 days of submitting that NOA Form B. Just a few weeks back, on May 20th, EPA announced that starting on May 30th, 2019, it will begin publishing online in ChemView, and there's a little picture of what ChemView looks like in case you're not familiar, sanitized Section 5 filings in the form they are received by EPA. So this means PMNs, MCANs, and SNUNs, their attachments, and other associated information, quote unquote. Um, EPA didn't specifically mention low volume exemption and test marketing exemption applications, but those could foreseeably be subject to the immediate publication as well, their sanitized versions. Um, because EPA will not be reviewing CBI sanitized filings before publication, it is more critical than ever that every submitter carefully verifies all CBI redactions before filing, or you risk uh, disclosure of any information that was overlooked. As an aside, folks should be aware that EPA is consciously trying to release more health and safety study information. As in the recent case with the pigment violet 29 risk evaluation, Tom mentioned, um, EPA took a second look at um, what was claimed confidential and ultimately asked the submitters if um, they could release more study information that they couldn't substantiate, and um, it did indeed release more information. Okay, finally, the Tosca amendments also required EPA to assign each confidential chemical identity a unique identifier, or UID, that can be used to track and link all non-CBI on a particular substance. And um, if the claim is ever, the CBI claim is ever denied, expired, or withdrawn, EPA must link the UID to the specific chemical identity. So on June 27, 2018, EPA released its UID policy. EPA read the statute as requiring one UID per chemical substance, regardless of the company asserting the claim. The result is that if one company fails to protect the chemical identity, this could jeopardize another company's ability to protect the same chemical identity. And this makes protecting other types of information that can connect the substance identity to the company or the product use, such as the percent of the chemical in a mixture or its specific use, more critical than ever. Also, EPA must publish and annually update a list of UIDs and their expiration dates. EPA issued the first UID list on November 29, 2018, which you can access on its website. And for inventory listed substances, you'll see the UID list includes the accession number 
the generic name, and PMN case number associated with the UID. And uh, at 1.31, I'll turn it back to Tom to wrap up. Thanks, Adrian. Home stretch, folks. I think I've got two or three slides here. Okay, penalties. Uh, as you probably know, when TOSC was enacted in 1976, the maximum penalty was $25,000 for at least for, for civil penalties. Lautenberg increased that to 37500 and indeed, since it's been almost three years since enactment, that has been increased under uh, the uh, uh, penalty inflation adjustment rule to now 39873 So 39873 is the maximum statutory per day penalty under TOSCA. Criminal penalties also were increased, and there are some uh, penalties now for organizations, although we have yet to see uh, that be used by U.S. EPA. So penalties have gone up. Uh, no surprise, you probably already know that. Okay, final topic for today, fees. This is, uh, I think, a, a pretty big issue. Uh, the Lautenberg Act, well, uh, you probably know that um, until Lautenberg, basically the only time EPA, the, the only filings for which EPA required fees were Section 5 filings like PMNs, right? That's the only fees that we basically had under TOSCA. But Lautenberg expanded that, and now... EPA is authorized or was authorized to obtain fees for, five, for Section 4, 5, and 6 actions. Okay, and so what this, and I'm, of course, cutting right to the chase, what this resulted in was this final fee rule last October that set forth the new fees under the Lautenberg Act, which are going to be subject to periodic re review and revision. Uh, probably the most important one, you know, you hear lots of talk about this one down here, how the, how the Section 6 fees are very, very high. Of course, split amongst the uh, the associated companies, but of course the PMN filing fee uh, was increased from $2,500, which it had been for years and years and years, to now $16,000. So a much higher P, uh, fee for PMNs than uh, we had become used to, uh, and of course a much lower fee for uh, small businesses. Uh, I think it's important to note that um, uh, you used to be able to get a reduced filing fees for intermediates in the synthetic sequence. That category has been eliminated, but you still can consolidate typically up to six chemicals into a single PMN for a single filing fee. So by all means, if you're thinking about submitting a PMN, you may want to think about submitting a PMN for any structurally similar substances uh, to save yourself uh, 16000 bucks a pop. So, boy, that is a very quick run through you know, everything that's happened in the past three years. This probably should have been a Tosca 3060, where we had 60 minutes to go through this, but I hope you kind of got a feel for what's hot, what's not. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call or shoot us an email. I'd like to thank Adrian for co-presenting and all our marketing staff for helping out with this, and I hope everyone has a fantastic summer, and hopefully you tune in for subsequent 3030s from Keller and Heckman. Thanks again.